morning. Welcome to Grace Covenant Church Adult Sunday School Hour. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll kick off this morning. Father God, I thank you so very much for the opportunity to be in the Lord's house with the Lord's people today. It is the Lord's day, and uh, Lord, uh, it is a day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, um, Lord, I pray for your help this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give me focus and clarity as I teach through Acts 26, Lord, that I pray that your people would be comforted and strengthened and that uh, we will collectively this morning, including morning worship, grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for every person here and family represented. Lord, thank you for Grace Covenant Church, and I pray for, Lord, that you'll just continue to grow us the right way. Lord, may we have a greater hope and a greater confidence in your word and in the gospel. May it never be watered down. May we never be concerned about how offensive the gospel is so that we change our language. But Lord, may we, like the Apostle Paul, not come with eloquent words, but continue to preach Christ crucified. Although it is a stumbling block to many and foolishness to others. Lord, we thank you for today. It's your son's holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. All right, so last week, Brandon went through Acts 25. There were a couple of themes, and I'll start you guys off with that question. There were a couple of themes that we talked about. Who remembers you've had like six or seven sleeps since then? Who remembers at least just one of the theme that Brandon talked about last week? Providence. Providence. And what was the other one, Phil? You both said Providence. There was one more. You're both correct. True justice. Okay? True justice was the other theme that Brandon talked about. Remember, with the providence of God, we see that Paul is really in a predicament. Charges have been brought against him, some accusations that he feel isn't correct, that he feel is unrighteous. So we see how God has brought him to this point in his life, but also there has been an injustice that's been done. And the only way that we can have true justice is whenever true justice flows out of God's character. And in this case with Paul, it is not. We have false accusations, and Paul is wanting to defend himself before King Agrippa. If you remember, Paul is the one who appealed to come before Caesar's tribunal. He goes, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. While also mentioning that he had done nothing wrong and he wasn't guilty of their accusations. So there were three things that Paul was guilty of opposing or being against. Does anyone remember what those things were? Against the Jews? Very good. 
Against the temple, well done. And against a person, namely Caesar. So he was accused of being against the Jews, being against the temple, and being against Caesar. This is why the Jews brought, um, well first, this is why he was in chains. And he appealed to Caesar, like I said a little bit ago, so that he could talk about these accusations and also clear his name. So that it was God's providence that Paul had the opportunity to begin sharing his story, his conversion story in Acts 26. This is one thing that we're going to be talking about today. So we begin chapter 26 with King Agrippa letting Paul know that he had the floor to speak. And if I could have someone read for us Acts 26, let's go with the first. <clears throat> let's go with the first eight verses. We can split that up, but let's have someone or two people at least read the first eight verses of Acts 26, please. Thank you. You just want me to read it all? Oh, yeah. Go for it. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Very good. <clears throat> Thank you, Ashlyn. So... We have Paul standing for King Agrippa to talk about these accusations. I believe it was uh, Ted Sally a few Lord's Days ago, uh, perhaps even longer. I forget, you know, you, you sleep and you just naturally forget. But he talked about flattery. That was you, wasn't it, Ted? Okay. So if you'll, if you'll look here. No, I think that was Tim. That was Tim? Yeah, was Tim. Okay. We have Tim who most likely talked about uh, flattery, okay? I thought it was Ted, you say Tim. Uh, and somewhat might look at what Paul says here in the beginning, that he considers himself fortunate to make this defense before you today. I don't think it was flattery, though. And I don't think this specific instance is flattery. If you remember in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions 
and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. And I firmly believe that Paul, he is excited here and he considers himself fortunate because Agrippa was possibly someone that he had been praying for. So now, Paul had been praying not only for King Agrippa to come to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but Paul right now has the opportunity by God's providence to share with him and many others. So, if you had the opportunity to make a defense for the case of Christ and share the gospel, maybe with a prominent person, this is for you to think about, or perhaps someone you have been praying for for a long time, not only for their salvation, but the Lord, for the Lord to give you boldness, for the Lord to give you courage, how would you respond? Would you consider yourself to be fortunate? Would you consider yourself to be excited? Who have you been praying for and planting gospel seeds with? So again, I firmly believe that Paul had been praying for King Agrippa. And this is why he was excited to have the opportunity. So one of your questions there is, I believe there's a question there of you. I want you to write a name down. I want you to write a name down of a person that you will commit to praying for, that they will come to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's a family member. Perhaps that is a neighbor. Perhaps that's a friend from high school that you still keep in contact with. But think about a name now, if, if, you, if, if it's on your mind, if not later, of someone that you can commit to be praying towards. So, we have Paul excited to speak to King Agrippa, to share his defense, to not only talk about these accusations, but also to share the good news and the gospel promises that flow from that. But also, Paul shares some things, what I call connective tissue, okay? I don't remember where I heard this before, it's, it's, it's at some point, maybe it was in my master's studies or undergrad I, maybe it was in an old youth group. I don't remember. But beginning in verse 4, Paul shares what I call a connective tissue with Agrippa, really about his heritage. And Paul is sharing this maybe with the hopes that he could relate. I've seen some commentaries that said that Agrippa was a Jew. Some commentaries that say that Agrippa was not a Jew. Some that say that he wasn't born as a Jew, but then he became a practicing Jew. But at this time, Paul is kind of talking about, again, the connective tissue. And he begins by saying that he was born and raised as a Jew in verse 4, what Ashlyn read a little bit ago. So he begins by saying that he was born and raised as a Jew. Number two, that he spent time growing up in Jerusalem. Number three, how he lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect. And in other words, Agrippa, I am just like, possibly you, I am just like the people that are accusing me. And it's in my opinion that Paul was sharing this connective tissue with Agrippa because his accusers muddied the water so much about who Paul truly was. So to set the record straight, 
to set his message straight as well, Lord willing, he would be received better. And this also makes me think of evangelism. Whenever we share the gospel with someone, and this is for you to think about, do you intentionally make any small talk identifying any connective tissue that you may have with another person? Something that they could identify with, something that they could relate with. Many of us know who Ray Comfort is. And Ray Comfort not only has a YouTube channel where he evangelizes and shares the gospel with people at Living Waters, but there's another newer YouTube channel that he just recently came up with called Ray Comfort Just Witnessing. And this is whenever you see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And, and by the way, show of hands, how many of y'all have seen Ray in action sharing the gospel with people? Okay, very good. Um, let me give you a, an example. So Ray, uh, his, his uh, poodle, I think it's a Bajan Frigier, if I'm saying that correctly. I sound fancy. Um, but it's a dog, and he rides around with this dog on his bicycle as he's on the beach, and he and his dog had the same kind of sunshades. And naturally... Naturally, the dog would attract people, right? Your dog's wearing sunshades. That is so awesome. And people would want to get a, a picture with this dog. And then Ray would use that as a way to create some small talk, a dialogue, and then share the gospel with them. But this dog has since passed away, and he got a new dog. So he's still using really the same method, although with a different dog. But in this new YouTube channel... What he does is, is there is a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't always see in those videos where he's trying to teach us how to evangelize better, right? And he just he's creating genuine small talk with people before he shares the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only way to share the gospel, and I'm definitely not saying that what I'm advocating for here is friendship evangelism. Who's ever heard of friendship evangelism? Okay. Friendship evangelism, Ronnie, do you have a good layman's definition for friendship evangelism? Where you just try to just make friends with that person before you ever share the gospel. Okay, very good. Thank you. So, if you took an evangelism class ever... <clears throat> Or if you came across, you know, really, uh, there's many books on it. But Ronnie is right, bless you. It's a period of time whenever you build a relationship with a person for the hopes of sharing the gospel with them. Sometimes, really, the gospel doesn't just naturally come. What the person really hopes is, is they see the life that you are living, and that prompts them to ask questions. Right? So it, you kinda, it kind of side skirts the gospel in some ways. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I'm not advocating for that. I'm also not saying that relationship building is necessary to evangelize. Does Paul have that amount of time whenever he's speaking before Agrippa? Man, me and this guy are going to be best of friends by the time that we're done here. Right? That Paul doesn't have that amount of time to do that as well. Um... If it's always better to build a relationship before sharing the gospel, 
But then the apostles really missed the boat. And I'm going to talk about, this should be your question three, one of those. There's two instances whenever the apostles use what's called um, contact evangelism. There's no relationship building. They go strictly to the gospel. We see this in scripture. In Acts 2, this, was ne- this is whenever Peter stands up. He shares the gospel with thousands of people he didn't know. And many, a large amount, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, Paul sets up shop in the marketplace in Athens. And he reasons about Christ with those who happen to be there. Again, we have friendship evangelism. We have contact evangelism. And really, if we couldn't, I'm trying not to reduce Acts 26 to be all about evangelism, but it kind of is. If you could say Paul was doing which kind of evangelism? Would it be doing friendship or would it be doing contact? Contact. Very good. We haven't gotten that far yet, but that was just an early question and you are right. This is contact evangelism. So evangelism is simply sharing the news about Jesus. If, we, if someone we've just met is willing to hear the gospel, then evangelism works. Notice what I said there. If someone hears the message of the gospel, does it, is, is that evangelism and did it work? What's taken out of the equation? Not God. I mean, hopefully God's in the midst there. Their response, whether they, whether they believe in the gospel or not. Very good. So evangelism is sharing the gospel message. Evangelism is not based upon them praying to receive Christ right then. Very good. So only God can save, and he can save whether sharing the message is in the context of a relationship or it's on an airplane seat. The point is our preaching the gospel doesn't depend upon a relationship. Again, I'm not advocating for that. Conversion doesn't depend upon a relationship either. We can get to know someone as well as we possibly can. We can show them the quality of our lives as much as we can. And still only the Holy Spirit working through the gospel itself can give new life. That is the only way. So, while relationships with non-Christians can enhance our evangelism and it can create opportunities for evangelism, relationships aren't necessary for evangelism. And that's what we're going to see here with Paul. So Paul takes a quick pause from sharing this connective tissue about who he used to be as a Jew, a part of the strictest sect. And he comes to a point where he takes a break about speaking about his heritage. And he gives another piece of evidence that ties him to them, but also reminding them about the accusations and how they were unjust. Someone read for me, if you would, again, even though Ashlyn's already read it. Acts 26, 6 through 7. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day 
And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Thank you, Mike. So, Paul clarifies this accusation of being on trial and being accused of this hope. Paul clarifies this accusation in verse 8. He goes, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? So who was Paul referring to here, guys? Who did God raise? Jesus Christ. Very good. So Paul asked why this was so incredible. In other words, why are you shocked that this was the promise that God made in Scripture? So here in verse 8, Paul points out that the resurrection is consistent with Jewish beliefs. So... My question for you, and it should be question number four, does the Old Testament teach resurrection hope? Yes or no? Or is that something that's only for the New Testament? Or is it something that we can find in the whole breadth of Scripture? Resurrection hope. All of Scripture. So, thank you, Richie. Thank you, Charlie. That is correct. So it might seem that the resurrection is exclusively a New Testament hope. But if you follow the trail, you will see that it has roots leading you deep into the Old Testament. God has provided resurrection hope to his people from the very beginning. Uh, let me have someone go to Daniel 12, 2. That's going to be one of your blanks there, one of your spaces there. Daniel 12, 2. In Isaiah 26, 19. If the Old Testament contains evidence of resurrection hope, shouldn't the Jews know that it was contained there? Why are they so surprised? This is Paul's question. Why are you so shocked? Why are you condemning me for believing in a resurrection hope that was made through Jesus Christ by God raising him from the dead whenever this has been in Scripture all along? Who has Daniel 12, too, that they could read? Go ahead, Ronnie. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal so the mention of eternal life and eternal shame is mentioned there. Very good. Uh, who had the Isaiah passage? Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Very good. We have the idea of... The earth giving up the dead. Again, this is talking about a resurrection. And here's the thing. I just chose two passages. I found two passages, but there's more. And if we had time, we could go through a whole lot more. But this idea of resurrection hope isn't just something that's exclusive to the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament as well. And again, Paul is like, why are you so shocked? This has been in Scripture all along. Have you not ever read these passages? Have you never read and heard of this story? So Paul then shifts his story again from resurrection hope, okay, 
to speaking about who Paul used to be before the Damascus Road interaction with Christ. If I could have someone read for us then, verse 9, let's split it up. We're not going to read and hit every topic here for the sake of time. 9 through 16. If I could have somebody read 9 through 16, please. Thank you. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen all to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to the things that you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Very good. Thank you, Laura. So, <clears throat> how many times... Has Paul delivered his conversion story in Acts thus far? Any guesses? This is his third time. Third time that we have read. We might have covered the one in Acts 9, probably the first time that we were in Acts, and then we kind of picked it up again, remember, after the 1689 study. But this is the third time that Paul delivers his conversion story in the book of Acts recorded by Luke by the inspiration of the Spirit. We're going to go somewhere a little bit different today, okay? I mean, instead of looking through the conversion story again, I'm going to go someplace different. Um, Let me see here. Make sure I have time to do this. I'm skipping over that. Yep. All right, here we go. Question number five that I skipped for. Nope, it's question number five. Very good. What is the best evidence of God? And this is for everybody. You can give me some answers here. What is the best evidence of God that you use when speaking to an unbeliever? Would it be your testimony? Would it be your conversion story? Would it be something else? And I'm happy to hear some suggestions of something that it would be. Whenever you share with an unbeliever the best evidence for God, do you use your conversion story? How God's changed you. Very good. Would anyone agree with that, with Ted? Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what Paul goes to. Initially, Paul, uh, his apologetic is a part of the resurrection hope. It's like, you should know this already. 
This is who I'm speaking about. God told us that he would come. That's not enough. Let me give you my conversion story. Right? So this is where he is. So Paul is accused. He wants to clear his name, like I said. He wants to glorify the Lord. And he wants to use this opportunity that he has to speak the name of Christ. It's a unique opportunity that Lord has orchestrated for Paul. Again, the theme of providence is still even in Acts 26. Using his testimony or his conversion story, will Lord willing, clear his name, but also give him an opportunity to share the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So, believe it or not, uh, like I said a second ago, this is the third opportunity that we have in Acts, and they are Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And I'm going to go with a, I guess you could say an apologetics slash textual criticism type of avenue here. How many have heard of Bart Ehrman? Andrew? Bart Ehrman? Okay. Bart, um, I'm going to call him Bart instead of uh, Dr. Ehrman. Um, but he is a professor in religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill. And he is one of the leading critics of the New Testament. Says he used to be a Christian, but we probably know the answer to that, do we not? And it's because he said he, un, he, he decided to not believe that he was a Christian anymore and in the truth of Christianity because of how many contradictions and errors that the New Testament had. Okay, so again, hang with me here. We're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different. So his name is super popular, has written many books. If you look up his name on YouTube, he has a lot of debates against Dr. James White, um, which are always fun to watch. Um, I, I personally believe that, that Dr. James White just kind of mops the floor with him a little bit. But again, I might be biased. So... Again, Ehrman believes that the New Testament has many contradictions that Scripture cannot be trusted. And he has the same conclusion about Acts, specifically with these conversion stories of Paul. So, again, there's three of them. And he says this. On three occasions, this is in one of his books, on three occasions, Acts narrates the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. Lost my spot. There we go. Compare them closely to one another and you will find very odd contradictions. In chapter 9, Paul's companions hear the voice of Jesus talking to Paul, but they don't see anyone. In chapter 22, they see light, but don't hear anything. Which is it? So again, we have chapter 9, according to him, saying one thing. Chapter 22, according to, to, to Bart, saying another, which is it? Right? So we have these details that aren't the same. And he says that because of these details, and there's many others that he writes about for the sake of time, we're just going to cover one. But again, he says that either, you know, Luke is maliciously trying to distort and um, I guess fabricate 
some things about Paul's conversion story, and he kind of gets lost, and he can't remember which is which, and they just look different, and since they look different, they can't be trusted. Okay? So, how would you, dear Christian, answer with your own defense that Paul's conversion stories are indeed accurate without contradiction? If you're opposed that question, and by the way, there are many unbelievers who are fans of Dr. Bart Ehrman, even many Muslims, believe it or not, many Muslims um, advocate for him because Bart Ehrman is attacking the New Testament, which has details related to Jesus Christ, and our Jesus Christ is different from their Jesus Christ, right? So they love this professor. So how would you, and I'll, I'll give us just a second if anybody would want to kind of attack that there. Well, you know, Dennis, I would go here. Let's do it. But how would you share your defense that Paul's conversion stories are indeed accurate without contradiction? Well, Very good. So there's two differences there. There's a difference in hearing and understanding. Okay? And you have to look at not only these two chapters side by side, sometimes in different uh, translations, but it's also good for you to know Greek, which I don't know very much, but apparently with when it comes to hearing, there's multiple ways, and I'm going to butcher this, it's I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try. Andrew, maybe, maybe you can help us out. But I know that it starts with an A-K-O-U-I-N-E. But there's like different words associated with that, which means different things in the Greek. So it's helpful if you go to the Greek. Again, I'm not doing that. But instead, I'm going to lean on the shoulders of... Christians who are way smarter than me, as well as people that I, I esteem very highly. And that's John Calvin. Let's see what he has to say about this. And you'll have to bear with me. This is from his commentary and the way it was translated. Uh, you can tell just how old it is. And the men, he speaketh now briefly of the companions of Paul, that they were witnesses of vision. Yet it seemeth that this narration doth not all in all points agree with that of Paul. We shall see in the 22nd chapter. For he will say there that his companions were terrified with the light, but they heard no voice. Some there be who think that it was a fault and that through ignorance of the writer, the negation is placed out of its right place. I think that it is no hard matter to answer it because it may be that heard, they heard the sound of the voice, yet they did not discern either who it was that spaketh or what was spoken. They heard not, saith he, the voice of him that spaketh with me. Surely this is the meaning of these words, that he alone knew the speech of Christ it followeth not thereupon that those might have heard a dark and doubtful voice. Whereas Luke saith in this place that there was a voice heard 
and no man seen. His meaning is that the voice proceeded from no man, but that it was uttered by God. Therefore, to the end of the miracle may carry the greater credit. Paul's companions see a light likened to lighting, lightning, but they see Paul lie prostrate as they hear a voice from heaven. Nevertheless, Paul is alone. <clears throat> Paul alone is taught what he must do. In other words, guys, if I could summarize what John Calvin difficultly said at that point is that the issue then is understanding. There was something that was heard. Whenever it says they did not hear, it means that they did not understand. This is what Bart Ehrman gets wrong. And if you think about it, we've all experienced this. You know, a week doesn't go by for me. Maybe for you, whenever you or your kids are saying something from another room, and the person who is supposed to hear it says, I can't hear you. But even though they did hear, they just didn't understand. Okay? That happens all the time. Maybe it does with you. So, they didn't understand what they said despite hearing the voice. So again, that defense of that text would be, no, they both heard a voice. The issue was only Paul understood it. So, moving to the very last part. We move to a, a brief talk about Scripture's trustworthiness. And there are many people, including Bart Ehrman, who feel that Scripture is not trustworthy and their voices are loud. This happens in many universities, believe it or not. But mainline denominations, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, they also abandoned the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. They decided years ago that Scripture wasn't completely incapable of being wrong, that Scripture also had many errors. And you could probably think of some denominations who followed suit with that. There were major divisions, major splits, where one side still believes that it's not without error. The other one believes that it is without error. So whenever it comes to Scripture, whenever you start believing that Scripture is capable of being wrong, that Scriptures contain errors, other things start to fall apart, like the atonement. Well, maybe Christ's death on the cross wasn't completely sufficient for the forgiveness of all the sins of the people who would believe in him or who were elected. Not only that, but biblical sexual ethics begins to be skewed whenever you decide that the Bible does contain errors or the Bible is capable of being wrong. Well, maybe God got wrong or maybe Paul got wrong where we're going to omit now or completely dismiss that homosexuality is now a sin, right? Well, maybe Paul didn't mean homosexuality. Maybe Paul didn't mean feminism or uh, effeminate. Maybe this is what Paul meant here. Yeah, this, this is surely what Paul meant here. It really doesn't have to do anything with homosexuality. That is permissible. Um, again, and you have 
mainstream pastors. I think of one pastor who has like the eighth largest church in America, one who unhitches one testament from the other, and his name doesn't need to be mentioned. But he did a speech here recently for pastors talking about how um, homosexuality really is a thing that shouldn't be dismissed. It shouldn't be looked down upon. It shouldn't be called a sin. But these guys should be esteemed highly because of their faith. Because God didn't answer their cry and their prayer that God should remove this sin from their hearts. But God didn't answer them. And because God didn't answer them, they still love God. What mighty faith these people still have. A lot, a lot happens and a lot crumbles whenever you dismiss the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay? So, whenever it comes to contradictions, a lot of people get this confused. Finishing up with this point. Again, long-winded, I'm sorry. A variation and a contradiction aren't the same thing. We have a variation in Scripture. There's a difference between Acts 9 and Acts 22. You have to look a little bit deeper, again, to see that they say virtually the same thing, but at first blush, at first glance, there's a little variation. There's a little bit of a difference. A variation and a contradiction aren't the same thing. And again, you have to remember that sometimes eyewitnesses report things differently. Do you have a question? No, Dennis, I was just going to come to your... And, and say, I think what you're explaining about Bart Ehrman, right, and how he's trying to make these two things so different, right. is that he actually knows better. What you described I, I, was awesome, and this man holds as many degrees as you can probably sure. hold, and he would know that. Right. And so I just want us to realize just the malicious intent Absolutely. Uh, behind people to try to crumble our faith. And so Absolutely. It, just, it almost makes it even that much worse right. Right, that he would say something like that because he obviously knows. And that's what the first part of Romans talks about by suppressing the truth. That's right. Even though God revealed himself to those people, right. they suppressed the truth. Yeah. yeah, he didn't leave the faith because he found contradictions. He leave the faith because he loves to sin. That's the reason. Um, he suppresses the truth because he loves his sin. All right, question number, I forget. So it's a quote by R.C. Sproul about the trustworthiness of Scripture. It's a good one. The doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean we won't find difficult to reconcile text in the Scripture. The Bible isn't a divine book, but it's also a very human book. Not that it is filled with human errors, but that it reflects how human beings tell stories. No two people write in exactly the same way. No two human beings report their perspectives on the same event identically. Two people, or even the same person, as we can see with Luke, they actually share the same event, but doing it differently. This is the kind of thing that we find in Scripture, and differences or variations do not mean contradictions. Lastly, man, I'm skipping so much, guys. I hate this. Lastly, Jill and I used to be involved heavily in network marketing. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm not going to give you a spiel, a promise. But the Lord blessed us in that venture for a time. And, um, 
it, it, it was really cool. And we learned some things that kind of translate to this. Not really, but bear with me. <laughs> but we used to train people about what's called an elevator message. Right? If you had 30 seconds to be on an elevator with a person, what would you say in order to plant a seed or kind of convince and persuade that person that your product is amazing? Well, I can't get on that plane anymore, but I can't get on that plane about Christ. Right? I want you to think about your 30-second elevator message. If you had 30 seconds to share the transforming grace that you have now in Jesus Christ, what would it be? And many of the times whenever we don't share our faith and we don't share the gospel, number one is we have too lofty of opinion of man where we're kind of worried of what they're going to think about us. Number two is you don't practice it. You've got to practice it. Write it down. Think about your testimony often. Write it down and maybe even memorize it. Okay? That's what I conclude with there. We have ten minutes till the worship service this morning. Um... I'm sorry that I ran out of time. I probably had about 20 more minutes to go. <laughs> Let's end with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Thank you guys so much. Lord, we thank you so much for your infallible, inerrant word. Lord, may we be emboldened this morning to realize that your scripture, that your word, um, that is from your mouth, God breathe, that it is trustworthy, that it is infallible, that it can be trusted. Lord, help us to not lean on our own understanding, but have wisdom that is from above, not only with trusting Scripture, Lord, but also wisdom that is from above whenever we deal with um, unbelievers. As Paul shares his conversion story, it's, it's not by accident that he was there, and it's not by accident whenever we have an opportunity to share our faith with another person. It's a divine appointment. It's something that you orchestrated, that you ordained by your sovereign hand and in your good providence. Lord, may we remember that. May we uh, ask for boldness. May we remember that the Spirit actually leads and guides us in those dealings. Even whenever we're hauled in and we're in chains, Lord, that the Spirit will give us the words to say. May we lean upon you. May we trust in you. And Lord, may we have the boldness like Paul had to share our faith. Boldness that you gave him as we know that Paul was nothing without you as we are nothing without you. We thank you so much for everything. Lord, be with us as we go into this corporate worship hour. May you be glorified this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.